Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first pick today comes from Henry Mance in FT Weekend, and it's about whether or not the coronavirus will actually change how we live. With all the coronavirus news out there, it's hard to cut through the noise. The threat of the disease feels existential, but humanity has faced pandemics before and humans have largely carried on as normal. Indeed, according to current models, 98 to 99% of those who catch this disease will survive. But what I liked about Mance's piece is that it drills down on what the long-term psychological effects could be this time around, and why corona could be different from diseases past. This isn't just one man's opinion on how various aspects of our lifestyles may or may not be affected by the virus, It's a really interesting, broad look at what corona can teach us about the nature of the age we live in. Mance says, It's an age where both human extinction and human immortality are discussed as genuine possibilities. The coming global pandemic could tilt our perception of which is more likely. In short, this could be a watershed moment. If the disease continues to arise sporadically, more people could choose to forego air travel, deciding that their physical presence at that work conference isn't so essential after all. If the threat of a climate emergency isn't enough to stop us hopping on that plane, the threat of a global health crisis might be. And here we arrive at Mance's central point. While the coronavirus itself might die down and become a footnote of 21st century history, it could prepare us psychologically for big changes we might have to make to prevent, or survive through, the worst effects of climate change. There's a lot more to unpack here, and I'd recommend checking out the full nine-minute story in last Friday's FT Weekend. The link is in the show notes. My second pick today is from Samati Reddy in the Wall Street Journal, and it's about why daylight saving time is bad for you. In Europe, the clocks jump forward on the 29th of March, and they've already jumped forward in America. We like to grumble about the minor inconveniences caused by the one-hour shifts. We lose sleep in the spring, or feel more tired as it gets darker earlier in the afternoon in the fall. But Reddy explains why the consequences are much more dangerous than you might imagine. In fact, according to a growing body of research, the minor time jump leads to a higher immediate risk of heart attacks, strokes, atrial fibrillation, and potentially car accidents. That's because our internal clocks, or circadian rhythms, control everything from our hormone levels to our blood pressure, and disrupting that system can cause big problems. Studies have shown increased instances of heart attacks and strokes in the days after the change to daylight saving time. Reddy offers a breakdown of the recent research, and the evidence is growing. These might be heart attacks that would have happened anyway, but the acceleration is still a cause for concern. And some doctors think that all that switching back and forth is bad for the brain. For people with sleep disorders, adjusting to the change can be brutal. Even people with regular sleep patterns can be affected for five to seven days following the time jump. And we're only just beginning to understand how important sleep is to our health. For more information on what science can tell us about this, read the six-minute story from Thursday's Wall Street Journal. My third pick today is from David Sedaris in The New Yorker, and it's about his relationship with his dying father. It's also really funny. Sedaris is one of my favorite writers. He has that magic comic touch that makes reading about illness, operations, and even death both poignant and hugely amusing. And this piece is a prime example of that. 
On the face of it, this personal story is about a son whose father hit him as a child, cut him out of his will, and made his disapproval abundantly clear throughout his life. And yet, I could quote almost every line of it and make you chuckle. Sedaris doesn't shy away from dark details, and he doesn't shy away from gross details either. The first episode of the story centers around a medical procedure involving a wire being threaded up the hole in Sedaris's penis in order to take bites out of his bladder for a biopsy. See what I mean? The mastery here is in the way Sedaris juggles and juxtaposes the troubling concepts of heartache and mortality with sillier, more ridiculous concepts like berets and rectal exams. We're guided through the piece and encouraged to feel such a huge spectrum of emotions that in less skillful hands it might feel disorientating. Instead, it's delightful. And the way he writes dialogue is equally brilliant. There's a tense conversation in the hospital where Sedaris calls out his father on being vain and uncharitable. And as a reader, you wait with bated breath to find out what the response will be. Eventually, his father utters the confusing phrase, You won. I can't recommend this heartbreakingly poignant and surprisingly funny 17-minute piece enough. It's from last week's New Yorker. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. <laughs>